are you all? It seems like ages since we've seen each other. It seems like ages since I've talked about in excruciating detail some some minor piece of my life. One month. Then weeks. <laughs> exactly. So long ago, there were birthdays. Daniel had a birthday. Um, yeah, a lot going on. <laughs> I got a big day ahead of me, though. I got, I got this celebration of your birth right now, Dan. <laughs> um, could go on all day. And I got, I got band practice again. We're practicing all the time. I th- we're practicing all. We got a gig. Where's the gig? Medford on a porch. How are you feeling about it? Do you, are you at the point where it's beyond, like, it's obviously always going to be recreational, but is that the point where you feel the need to share it with other people? Or are you still at the, I'm just doing this for me and hanging with my friends? Getting a little closer to the former. It's it's a weird similar. I, I definitely willed it into existence, right? Like it definitely the, the idea that I'm in a band in which I can play exactly like Robert Quine and uh, Richard Lloyd, and at least one of the other, and sometimes more than one of the other band members, not only appreciate it but know that. Are they all about the same age as you? I mean. I- it's hard for me to know because I look 10 to 20 years younger than I am and I don't ask them, but they look like old men to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, they're roughly the same age. They all, they're one dude writes for the Atlantic one, a couple of them write for the globe. Like they're, they're erudite fellows, middle-aged, well-educated Massachusetts people. There's, you're clearly fitting into some psychographic there. Maybe there are more Georges in the world than we think. <laughs> That's a scary thought. Wouldn't that be a beautiful world? Wouldn't it? Don't you think it <laughs> You know what? If there were, everyone would eat better. There would be no gun violence. There would be no religion. There would be much better music, much better TV. Based on the opinion of wow. George, which I guess is the yeah. <laughs> you know the entire civilization at that point. So, you know, um, but we are. I mean, and the other thing that's happened, at least in the United States, because Canada apparently is like in the height of height of COVID, but in the states, in Massachusetts, it's it's like it's back to normal. Like I can go into a restaurant, no mask. Like what up? I might do that. You had topics. What were our topics? Yeah. Well, this ties in very nicely. This is exactly what the topic was, but how it relates to businesses and creatives because the vaccine is rolling out gradually and lifestyles are changing gradually and so what does this mean for creatives and for businesses and what you know we've said a million times everyone has said a million times covid and quarantine was an accelerant right and so what that you know things like live streams things like doing zoom versus traveling for face to face what is going to stick around what is going to die with covid um and then i've got to imagine you know in the event space virtual events aren't going to die out completely i think they were we were they were oversaturated but to a certain degree it was it was very welcome um, even in a non-COVID world. So this kind of blended remote and in-person events, whether that's concerts or conferences, um, you know, just like planning for that. And and if you are hosting a conference, what does that look like? Do you have cheap virtual tickets? Does it cannibalize your in-person stuff? Uh, are people willing to travel as much to 
see a show if there is a virtual option? Yeah, I, I think it's the right question. And, and um, you know, I, I think that the, the, if you look at what's happened as, as um, you try to look at it in a glass half full type of way or that there can be some some unintended benefit out of this nightmare that we've all lived through, it is hopefully that there, that that certain things that that will help um, creators and artists of all type um, have have become more um, more accepted faster than they otherwise would have. So, you know, live stream technically, like we were forced, customers were forced to deal with that, right? And mm-hmm. and and bands were forced to be like, well, I got to do that, and um, you know, it's not a sustainable thing for a band that that's you know just sort of in that mid-tier to tour 200 days a year for for the long time it's just not like it's Mm -hmm. it's well it's it's hard on you you don't have a social safety net it's very bad for i mean so many different things and so if we can get some sort of equilibrium where to your point dan it expands the market whether that's when we're playing live we will also do a live stream thing so that people can see it and, and customers are like, oh, kind of you know, cool. And or we're going to tour less because we can do some live streaming thing. I think that's that's a big part of it. I think that the other thing that's accelerated that we haven't haven't quite. I think it's a, it's a it's a sort of um, lagging indicator, but I think it'll start to accelerate much more quickly now. Is VR? Is is that that I think there's a very quiet. I hope so. Well, I think there's a quiet group of people that have actually turned to VR through this time um, just for a variety of reasons, socialization, sanity, meetings or whatever. And it's a very small percentage, but I think it's I think those that have done it see the future. And um, I think the technology is, is going very fast. Um, and so I, I'd like to believe that the, I think what the, the biggest accelerant is been towards metaverse type things. And, and even I think within the last two to three months, um, I, I don't know. I, I just, just anecdotally, if I did, if I did like one of those Google Cloud searches, I bet the number of times people have been searching for Web three and Metaverse has has accelerated very much over these past couple months. And I think we're we're really, really at the dawn of something cool. How much or little of that was was COVID? I it, I don't think it's it's non zero. I don't you know I think COVID did push us to that, but I also think that it's it's you know, part of the hype cycle stuff, like in where I think we're about to, we're about to see this again, I think with the crypto crash that's upon us. And I've started writing about this, that, that, you know, and, and somebody coined this phrase, I wish had, how do you say HODL? Like it's one of those autodidactic words. Like, does anybody know how to pronounce it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. So, so I've seen other people, and I think this is really smart, taking the word B-U-I-L-D and inverting the D and the L. So it's B-U-I-D. DL. So it's it's the It'll, same. Yeah, just to keep building, right? Keep building. And and that was very much my approach um after the winter of of, of 2017, 18, whatever, th- during the first crash. Like, I'm just gonna keep building. But the sustainable stuff keeps going, the people that really care about mm-hmm. it, and then the cash grabs. No, fall that's what off. I mean. It's like like exactly. I I love these moments. I love these moments when people that are just sort of charlatans or whatever are like, ah, I'm out. You know, because you never should have been here anyway, right? And and that's true of investors and speculators and just like opportunists. And but I really I believe in the in the technology deeply in terms of the the DeFi stuff. Um, and we've had this beautiful past whatever six or seven months 
of liquidity just pouring in. So many interesting things have emerged, whether it's, you know, things like Algorand or that that I don't I don't know if absent those speculators, they would have been able to do as much. Um, so I'm gonna just keep BUIDLing and and how much of that was was COVID related. I think it I think it shaped, I know it shaped it, it, it it's definitely shaped my thinking about what metaverse can be as it relates to to um, issues around identity and gender and empathy and race matters and all of those things that prior to COVID, for whatever reason, and I don't, I haven't yet been able to kind of draw the reasons why I wasn't thinking of it in those terms, and now I'm completely driven by the 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 empathy machine that VR could be, you know, that, that, that music still and always will be. But like, I'd always just sort of verticalize, like, ah, music or art or whatever is empathy building. I think VR is, I think metaverse could be. And that's exciting to me. VR has changed how I like communicate with my family. Cause we used to do every other week or something. I'd, I'd do a FaceTime with my parents and just catch up. But now it's, every other week or every week we'll do VR mini golf with my wow. entire family. And it's just like an activity, which makes it, you know, you're not like, Oh, so what did you do this week? It's having that right. activity you, as, right. which is like Fortnite and all the other stuff. And it's totally. it's like going to a show with someone, although I've been very disappointed with every VR concert experience, but hang on to that. Cause I think that's a really important thing for everyone that listens to this podcast about why, what you just said about playing mini golf with your fan, with your fans, with your family, is is an analogous type of of gesture to being in a club with friends watching a show. Because you have, whereas whereas watching a live stream uh, uh, or VR stream of an artist or whatever, unless you can also have that socialization aspect with your friends. Um, it, they're they're completely different, and this is where we have to get. Well, big screen is is getting close to that. It, it, no, no, but but I think that's, I still think that's important. I don't think I'm articulating well at all. But like, at, I really want artists to think about as they go into this next tranche of development post COVID that that one dimensional live stream of I'm going to play, you're going to listen in a in a in a decentralized way, it doesn't work. But right. there is something closer to you all are going to hang out virtually. I'm going to provide the musical soundtrack. You can lean in and listen during the songs that you love, and you can lean back and get that kind of virtual beer in the same way that you would when you know Led Zeppelin played Moby Dick or something, and talk and catch up in those moments with your friends. And that's what you're doing with your family with, with the mini golf. And that's a really important metaverse kind of trope. Well, there's a great video game comparison there, because when you're playing online multiplayer video games, you have the option of being in a private group with your friends right. or playing openly, publicly, and you can talk with anyone or just turning off all communication and doing the game. And maybe that's how live streams should be. Yeah. I mean, I think all the time, like, like I, as everybody knows, I've been just so down this fucking rabbit hole with the band television. And, and I was listening to it and I so wanted to like share that moment with Carly. I wanted to be like, oh, I, I, you, you gotta, you gotta hear this. And, and if we were in the same house or state, you know, same place, I could, but, but there is a VR thing where I think in the not distant future, 
we could hang out remotely and just be like, okay, I'm going to, but, but, and then, it, and we're just talking, shooting the shit and there's music on in the background. And then, and then I go, listen to this, just like, li- just let's stop, pause our conversation for a second and listen to the interplay between Richard Lloyd and Tom Verlaine. And, and Carly might go, wow, that's super cool. And we could talk about it or, I don't know. Let's go back to talking about, you know, the weather or some shit. And that's super exciting to me, right? Like that that moment where it doesn't have to be this very binary, oh, I'm going to sit there attentively and listen and not communicate or versus I'm not listening at all. There's something in between and that's what happens in concerts. You don't you don't always sit there and just like lean in with every hang on every note. You kind of, you know, and, and and I think VR provides that potentiality, but then metaverse could be like, oh, so we're listening to we're in George's little VR room hang and we're just shooting the shit, doing our, you know, whatever. And and then something comes on and then Carly could go Okay, I'm gonna go explore more of this television thing. I'm gonna watch a video. Whatever, I'll be right back. You know, like that's that's what's so mind blowing to me about the potentiality of this, and I think it's unbelievably exciting. And I think it finally allows us to do those collisions that I've wanted. I mean, we were talking about this, Dan. You know, about like if you if you're doing a social token, you can't just view it as a reward, like a loyalty card. It has to be we we who own or have interest in the social token, we like each other and like similar things. So let's, you've got a social token for a band. Let's have a room where people who are fans of that band can talk about books or, or food or like, that's what's interesting. Not, Hey, you can get unreleased songs. I mean, that's fine. Great. But what I want more is the community and the, and the choreographing of we all clearly like kind of the same shit or else we wouldn't be here. So let's make it more three-dimensional. And that, I don't know, I've been waiting all my life for that. Yeah, I think you brought it up before. If if a bunch of people like one artist, there's probably a bunch of other shared interests because they match some type of... And, and Metaverse allows for you to easily just, just go from one thing to the other. Like, where it can be like, oh, okay, so we're listening to this thing. We like this band. And then you can kind of, you can just see the drag and drop of check out this cookbook. And then like, I, I don't know, I can, I vision it so well. But Carly, you were doing, um, was it the, I don't, I don't want to say the wrong, exercising or uh, not exercising. Dancercism. Dancercism. Mm-hmm. Like exercising. Yes, that's a word, Dan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were uh, exer- exercising. But I mean, that sounded like you found a community of people that it was, you didn't know anyone in there, right? Or someone told you about it, but it was all of a sudden you're getting joy of this this group of people that you never would have met otherwise. And dancing in front of them, dancing in front of strangers, which is not a thing that I would assume I'm comfortable with. And I've invited friends to join me. And many of them have been like, I'm not dancing on Zoom in my house in front of strangers. Are you crazy? <laughs> like this is like torture. But I think that you're right in that you can find the community with those similar interests. Like there's also a WhatsApp group and people share the, like what they see on their walks or flower arrangements or the DIY projects that they're doing around home. There's just like this creative group of people that's obviously just creative people. And they were looking to connect with other creative people. And the dancers, a lot of it, 
is of course geared to exercise, but it's unlocking creativity. So there's a lot of different interests that are happening there. It's clearly a form of exercise that is going to appeal to a certain set of people and not appeal to mm-hmm. <laughs> different True. set. Um, but that's what makes it great, right? And that's, I mean, that feels like a pandemic kind of positive where, you know, maybe there would have been a class at the local dance studio or whatever that did that, but because I wouldn't have signed up. Right. Yeah. It was so much, the the barrier to entry is lower. Uh, But, but take it one step further. Like I, I am, as everyone knows, a phenomenal dancer. Right. So, I mean, people like will stop me on the street just to be like, dude, would you just do a little tap just real quick? Just make my day. Carly, have you ever seen George dance? I've seen glimpses of George dancing. It's hard to see the whole thing. It's like looking at the sun. Like when I dance, it's <laughs> it's a little bit too much for most people to take in at once. So they can, you know. So, I mean, Carly's seen it, but it's it's emotional. Like wh- when you do see it, like a lot of times people have to lie down. Yeah, you end up weeping. It's like this, this whole experience. There's like ancestral trauma that comes up. Yeah, no, it's 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 like a it's like a shamanistic ritual, and so there's some vomiting at first, but then at the end, people, <laughs> I mean, they come out the other side a, a lot better. And but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of tears. You you feel you just feel exhausted after, but just in a good way. I mean, you feel drained and exhausted. And how how did we end up here? I just love because I've I've been to uh, not many shows with George. I think maybe two shows with George and like concerts. And both times George is in the back of the room on his phone, <laughs> like responding to emails. And yeah, it's, not yeah, interested. It's not the right venue. Apparently, you need no. You need an it's unwilling audience or something. Yeah. No, but I, my point is that I would do. I, I would be much more predisposed to put on my VR and do a jazzercise class than I would on Zoom. Like I can I can actually see myself doing it. Is it the anonymous? 100%. I could put on a, a skin and a, and a fun hat, you know, and, and then just dance away, shake my rump. But like on Zoom, no, I'm not doing that. Like, and I so respect and admire Carly for doing that. Again, if I did join that thing, it, the whole class, they'd just be focused on me. There'd be vomiting, tears, and then eventually breakthrough. I wanted to ask something earlier because we started talking about all of this because of maybe the relation that COVID has had and and if it's accelerating it. And George, you talked about like the empathy side of it, but I'm wondering also, I mean, I think that VR is one of those fields where I've always been a little bit surprised how slow it seems to evolve and whether that's the technology or the market adoption, like I've been talking and hearing about it for so long and I don't feel like there's it's had its moment yet, but talking about COVID and VR, I don't, I don't know if I see the connect as much, but this last year, COVID has obviously played a part, but there's also been like huge social unrest. And I would assume that that has more of a contributing factor when you're talking about the empathy about like, whether it's towards genders or different races or, you know, non-binary people or whatever it may be. I mean, this last year, COVID has of course played a part of that, but like society has also shifted quite a bit this last year. Monuments are being taken down. Like Black Lives Matter, I think obviously has been an issue forever, but really grew in terms of like the people involved in it and the momentum and legislation and all of that. So I'm wondering, like, do you think that just 
the change in society could also be linked to VR? Or is it just that it's been, it's finally due for its time? There's, there's a game on Oculus called, I think it's called Traveling While Black. And it's, I think, exactly about that, giving people that are not black the, you know, putting them in that kind of experience and, you know, the the type of judgment that you would receive and ah so you tr- you travel and experience what it would be like to be yeah but you know i think where that falls short is no one that is a racist is going to play that game unless they're forced to by like a judge as part of their rehabilitation or something which um, would be but, an interesting component to rehabilitation totally but um I think the fact that that type of game can be created or that type of experience can be created is probably a step in the right direction. I mean, that's the green book that, and now everyone associates with the movie that came out last year, but that's a historical, that's a historic, like that's historically accurate there. The green book was a, a travel book for African-Americans to travel safely by car across the U S to know which towns to avoid, which hotels or, or like, um, B and B's would let people of color come and eat like during the sixties or whatever. So that's actually a historical artifact. And then now people associate it as if it's like a, just a movie. I never saw the movie, but that that's a very real thing to travel safely by car. When that, when there was the big kind of boom of that's the during Jim Crow. Yeah. And that, but also no, but just because every car, every house suddenly had a car and like road trips became a thing and all of that. It was a, a, culturally significant moment that wasn't accessible to to black people it looks like i just looked it up this that um the app traveling while black is partially based on the green book um which both the point about like i can't imagine someone racist playing or you know using that that is right right like but where it gets interesting to me is that I use the same analogy that I always use about some racist cracker in you know whatever era listening to hip-hop or something and and it it's just loving it you know and and it take I mean racism is all about the other the, the sense of the other right being fearful of the other or whatever and and so when the other becomes not fearful or scary or oppressive or whatever and instead becomes interesting then then that's that's empathy right and so i i i don't i haven't quantified it around race as much but around things like gender i'm fascinated by the fact that that there's an entire generation you know henry's generation roughly um that that will play these games um in a very flu- identity fluid manner, like that, you know that. And again, this is somewhat anecdotal, although I have talked to a few anthropologists about it because I, I, I'm writing about it. But that that it's a relatively new thing for, say, a, a, a young cisgendered male, whatever, to to play as a female or play as. And 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 there's, I think that that's very potent. Sorry, Carly. I think the big difference is that you could have, I mean, when I was young playing video games, which I did not do that much of, but like at that time when you could choose an avatar, if, if you ever saw a young boy choosing a female, it was because it was the earlier versions of what female avatars were, which had like the little tiny waist and the gigantic boobs. And it was like a very hypersexualized 
Mm, creation. That's not what's going on here. But that's Mm. what I'm saying is a big difference. So I don't think that it's necessarily a new phenomenon, but the gender fluidity part of it and, and different representations of like the avatars that are available is I'm just saying like the, the behavior is something you're kind of making my point. It's a shift. Whereas it's not like a jokey thing. It's like, Oh, I'm just going to, it doesn't matter. I'm male, female, non-binary. Exactly. But think about the psychography of that, where you're, at that stage in your life where you're, you're trying, I mean, you're going through puberty, you're doing whatever, and you, it's a confusing time, and 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 you 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 have, I'm not sure what the ramifications of it will be, but some sense of of, of a of a lack of judgment around that, right? And I think that that's where historically so much of of, of racism comes from. It's judgment. It's this perception that that one particular race, whatever is is judgmentally you know a priori better than another and when you strip that away then it's it's it it makes it it makes it ridiculous <laughs> right it, it makes it makes the whole sense that that any gender Just race whatever is is matter. a priori right that's the word it's non-consequential and so when you take the consequence out of it you 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 de-weaponize it and then it could just be like, and then it doesn't make any sense. And it's like, wait, why in the world would would I think of myself as superior to someone just based on my gender or my skin color? It's 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 ludicrous. Or why must I even associate myself to a gender? It, exactly. It's in you use exactly the word. It's inconsequential. That is not a consequential factor in my yeah, and and that that's potentially revolutionary. And I go back to the idea of like, why hasn't it adopted? It hasn't adopted, and I know everyone on this call and, and listens to this is tired of me saying it. VR is a tool for a job to be done, not a replacement for other forms of entertainment. And forever we've thought of it as well. Now you can watch videos on it. watching videos on VR fucking sucks, right? You know, what I mean, it, oh, I like it. You gonna watch a whole movie with your VR goggles on? Probably not a whole movie, but again, like job to be done. There's like some YouTube videos I enjoy a lot more. No, no, okay, fine, but that's a different job. To, I, I should have been more clear. People for a while thought, okay, you can strap this VR headset on, and it's like you're in this beautiful theater and a big screen or whatever. It, it, as of yet, and I think this will change. The resolution isn't great. The pressure on your head is. It's hard to watch for me a two and a half hour movie. I'd rather still watch it in a, on a, in a TV or whatever. That'll go away. But certain other things, playing, you know, relaxation, all this other types and certain videos or whatever, it's it's superior in a specific quantifiable tool job to be done. And we're just starting to approach it that way, I think, as, oh, how can this be a tool? And I have heard, actually, Carly, you said about like, oh, maybe it, they should be forced to watch, uh, you know, racists should be forced to. I have heard about things like that. I have heard about, not to quite that degree, but people doing startups around VR and, and equity in, in institutions where it's like, because training, like I have to go through this at Berkeley, like watch the stupid training videos or whatever. It's like, they're not helpful, right? In turn, like none of those videos are going to make somebody who is a racist not be a racist, right? Like it's just, you know, so, but something like. Anyway. I know that it is being used. There's implicit bias tests and implicit bias trainings. The thing that I think would be interesting is in rehabilitation efforts. So if you have done, just like you would be ordered to go to an anger management class, you could utilize, like you have to, and it may seem trivial 
on the, like the optics of it may seem trivial. Okay. Well, you, you like committed a hate crime and a part of your rehabilitation is like this Oculus game where you have to travel around the country as a black person, but there's nothing trivial about that. Like actually try showing people the experience of what it would be like. I think that would be really exciting. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, I come back all the time because I have certain people in my life who just, you know, they're kind of the all lives matter approach and it makes me, you know, want to, weep or jump off a bridge or something. Um, and and my line is always like, but you say that because you've never, you've never walked in the shoes of, you've never, and I as a white male haven't either, right? But I'd like to think that I at least can, can <laughs> you know, empathize enough to go, yeah. It, it, I mean, I have, I have walked down certain streets, New York in the eighties and been scared out of my fucking mind, but that's, that's a, a, and I remember those, but that's a very rare thing for a white male to feel uh, 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 people that are not, you know, white males deal with that all the time. And, and that's the thing. Like, so make somebody feel that way. Every time you walk out the house, you have a target on you. Feel that way for a while, and then tell me all lives matter. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, it's. Well, let's bring this back to, you know, with the changing lifestyle, you know, what businesses and creatives can learn from it or do to address it. I mean, I, I think what we talked about right now is just kind of shows if you have a, I want to say niche, um, target audience, uh, but probably not even that niche. You know, there are now ways to attract people nationally globally outside of your community and build them around what you're offering i mean i think of from even pre-pandemic as a music gear nerd i love anderton's music store in guildford england and i've been there once yeah i watch all their videos and i'm a fan of those people and i try to buy stuff from there when i can to support them because i self-identify with these people that are you know, thousands of miles away. Uh, it's, if anything, I feel like what, you know, certainly as, as digital marketers, what we've been preaching for years Ever. and years and years, now it's just like, there's no argument against it. You have to, if you are selling something that can have a reach outside of your, you know, geological local area, there, there's no excuse to not be, you know, putting together um, you know, the infrastructure for a community around what you're offering and kind of the purpose of what you're doing. Um, and there's more tools than ever for it. Oh, right, and more accessible tools. I, I haven't been this excited about art and entrepreneurship since like the, the late 90s. Like it's, it's, it, it feel, and, and I'm more excited now than I was. I mean, for, for those who weren't around, the late, the late nineties was kind of the dawn of web one. Right. And, and it was like, wow, something completely transformative is about to happen. And we don't know exactly what it is, but it feels accessible. Right. It feels like, and, and, and it, it was on for musicians. It, that was all on the heels of pro tools, which was a hugely, disruptive accessibility moment. Whereas you could, you could start making quality recordings, you know, for fractions of the cost and it, and it changed everything. And then web one, I mean, we're still wrestling with what, what, the, what that changed. Um, web three is, is going to make web one 
and certainly Web 2, which was really not that transformative, but um, into it's going to make it seem like it was a blip. And, and so for artists, for entrepreneurs, like we're all, it, it, it's like a new country's been discovered or a new planet. It, it's that significant. It's, it's, it's like you have, you have an entree into completely resetting. Like, you, you, you know, it's like we all got to, and again, and I want to be careful about this, and I've written about this, I think I have been careful. It's accessible dominantly for Western white people, right? Like, I want to be very clear. The, the, the tools, the NFTs, the social tokens, all of the shit that I'm prattling on about is not as accessible for minorities. And for so, and that's something that needs to be addressed. So I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. But um, with that caveat, we are at a, a these these types of moments don't happen often. You get you might get one or two of them in your lifetime, and and so for creative people, for business people, you have to lean in right now, even if it seems a little scary and disjointed and maybe gimmicky and maybe full of bros or whatever. It's 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 ours. It, it's ours to lose. It's it, you know we we can shape it, and and I I do think the decentralized decentralized element of this moment is significant and important. We have to fight for that. But the opportunities now, and don't be overwhelmed by them. Like I, I encourage people, don't don't be overwhelmed if like jargon and all like, people that are saying all these things, they don't they don't know that much more than than others. Like it's still early enough where you can come up to speed um very, very fast. And and I think you'll gain really, really disproportionate advantage. And I think it's it's I, I've never been more excited. I mean, I wake up every day excited about what am I going to build today? And that's an amazing fucking feeling. And in this case, generally, the people with knowledge are excited to help newcomers yes. get up to speed because it's, you know, it builds the network effect. Um, totally. We need for sustainability. So it's the more people are interested and the more they can be educated the better it is for the entire ecosystem. That dude, uh, Balaji, I don't know how to say his name, whatever, he's very, very smart. Um, and he started this 1729 thing, which, you know, it's a beautiful gesture where he's he's giving crypto away by people like doing certain tasks. So it's like, if you do this, we'll give you $1,000 worth of, of BTC or something. And I've been pushing Henry to it. It's like, okay, so, you know, code, and he's a good little coder. And I was like, well, code this up. And, and, and we were talking about it, and he's like, yeah, it took me a while, and I got stuck. I was like, my dude, if you get on the Discord for 1729 and say, I'm a 15-year-old, I'm a 15-year-old, the, the entire community will be like, here, let us help you. And that's super different than Web 1 and Web 2. Web 1 and Web 2, if somebody raised their hand, it was like, I don't know what you're talking about, you'd get laughed at, you'd get memed, you'd get, you know, because it was, it was centralized. It was like, we have the power, we have the knowledge, and fuck you. Now, it, to your point, Dan, I hadn't thought of it this way because I had I thought of it more as, as, well, it's just like people are less asshole-ish. But, of course, that's not true. There is there is a certain benefit to sharing the information in a decentralized way because of network effect. But I'd also like to think that we've certain of us have just learned that, that it's not a binary. It's a positive-sum game. And that, you know, and if you've read Seed of the Soul or any of those types of things where it's like capitalism doesn't have to be so binary. And 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 so, you know, there does seem to be at least anything like Matt Dryhurst, who's on this this podcast. There there are a lot of people and myself included, us included, like we just we share our information We're like here, take it, take it. It's not like, oh, I'm going to keep this secret. It, you know, it doesn't make any sense. 
let's uh let's go to three things okay all right three things numero uno the pedal movie uh which i told george about the other day it's a two and a half hour documentary about pedals um here's one quote about it that i thought summed it up pretty well uh the pedal movie is a star-studded love letter to the enduring power and magic of the humble stomp box the pedal movie takes you on a fascinating journey from the lo-fi dawn of effects through to its wonderful vibrant present day with style uh, and it was and this entire documentary which is really well done has amazing experts um, artists pedal makers on it is entirely content marketing because it was made by reverb.com which is like the ebay for music gear and i i just think it's so it's it, it really is a love letter to the community um but it's also you can buy all those pedals on reverb and they've put collections together based on the documentary but it doesn't feel like a two and a half hour commercial because it's made by people that really care and so it's it's just content marketing kind of at its best and it, it's a company that seems to really know who its customers are and you know are believers in their own product and purpose and so i, I think that's that's what I wish just like every company or artist would do if, you know, provide value to your community kind of at scale and do it in a way that can also benefit you financially or through awareness. Uh, there's so many ways to create win-win opportunities in the world of capitalism. Um, it's, you know, I, I wish this wasn't an outlier, but it just kind of struck me, uh, probably because I am a customer and a fan at the same time. But that, that feels good to be a customer and a fan of something. I think that's a it should always be that way. You know what I mean? Like if you're a customer and not a fan, that's that that's a problem. I mean Amazon. Amazon I was thinking exactly but Amazon Amazon causes tremendous cognitive dissonance. I don't know if it'll happen in our generation or our lifetime, but there will be an Amazon substitute in which you feel better about yourself when you shop there. Shopify. Any store that's powered by Shopify. Yeah. Okay, fine, fine, fine. I'm just saying that, that, that there will be something more like Amazon where you can buy all sorts of things and not feel, and, and there will be social. Right. And, there, and we're seeing it like BitCloud. Like we're seeing social networks that make you feel less gross BitCloud. too. I'm not saying that I like it, but the gesture is. Gross about BitCloud. Is, okay, fine, fine. But there is a gesture. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, <laughs> number two, this I'm one leaving. Is a little... <laughs> I'm hanging up, slamming down my phone in anger. Going to go dance. I'm going to go find somebody who needs, needs, so I'm going to find someone who appreciates my dance and needs to be cheered up, do a routine for them, watch them vomit, and then have a re rebirth. Hey, as long as I get through my three things. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, all right, but number two, and this one I'm super biased about, but I, I couldn't be more proud of, of um, the what's going on is the Errol Garner Centennial, uh, specifically the Liberation in Swing box set that uh, Peter Lockhart has, has put together with all the partners involved. It's just like, this is a true labor of love and it's kind of it's the most impressive um collection of material uh and i've i've 
been privileged to kind of see how hard everyone has worked on it and all the designers and the the label and it's a incredibly complicated package um there's four records 12 cds there's a vintage um 1967 promotional box from aragon's private archive of 45 rpms in it uh, a 60 page book that's hardcover hardcover cloth wrapped uh a a cassette um of his final performance ever um, wow. and they made it look exactly like the original cassette that it was recorded on which had some which was originally something else and they crossed out what was originally recorded on that tape and wrote um the date of the performance on it and so it's and they had to make this custom packaging for it it's just kind of remarkable um and i i had nothing to do with the design of it or the creation of it i'm just here to um to help them sell it although i I, this is not what i am doing here i I genuinely love it um but it's it's just remarkable what uh what they've done and i think it's uh you know we had peter on peter's an artist he's an artist yeah and it's kind of remarkable to see someone be an artist uh in a way that promotes a you know different artists work you know peter is not doing anything and raising his flag and saying this is me i did this he's doing it totally for the benefit because he believes in errol garner's music and legacy uh and so it's but that that's what artists do like i i, I um you know the, i finished a white paper this past week and and the part that i liked about it was i talked about serving the song you know, and, and you know that as a musician, Dan, like in somewhat serving the song, you don't play sometimes. You play less because like your own ego is less important than than the song. And Peter's that way, you know, in every project where it's like, well, I'm just going to serve the art. And to me, that that is being an artist because that's the whole genesis of the song that owns itself. It's it's about the song. It's about, you know what I mean? It's about the art. And a lot of times like the artist and creators just need to get the fuck out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very impressive. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more stuff um, announced and released about it um, as we get close to release date. But it's, uh, it's just something that's a, a privilege to be a part of. And number three is an album that I discovered over the past month. It's called Movies by Slowpulp, but movies spell M-O-V-E-Y-S. So it's debut album by the Chicago band. Um, and they were like halfway through recording just before lockdown. And then the singer, Emily Massey, had to leave Chicago to care for her parents in Wisconsin after they had a serious car accident that hospitalized both of them, uh, like right before lockdown. And so while she was taking care of her parents, she grabbed a, a borrowed mic um, from her dad's like basic home studio set up and recorded all of her vocals while going through that and that just kind of sets the tone for the record uh my favorite song on it is a song called trade it and the story behind it is uh massey was sleeping every day like more than she should have been it couldn't function and was basically blaming herself being mean to herself for why are you like this well turns out she has a chronic virus that was undiagnosed and so she wrote this song as like a way to say sorry for being so mean to herself and it's very very compelling um 
but just I mean, just a total random, awesome discovery. Uh, they're kind of in the vein of like Julian Baker, um, Phoebe Bridgers, but it's and I, I can't put my finger on what makes it feel different from them. Maybe it's a little bit more leaning towards um, the DIY indie scene rather than um, you know Phoebe. Bridgers and Julian Baker seem a little bit more established at this point. So this is a little bit more raw, but um, just in incredibly well done. Um, yeah. Happy little discovery. Carly. All right. So it's a little bit older now because we haven't talked in so long, but there e. is what <laughs> ET. Yeah. Have you heard of it? <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> no, not E.T. as in that since we've spoken. But there's an episode of Hidden Brain. Is it Condoleezza Rice? What a random... <laughs> Is that like a Jeopardy answer or something? No, or you know what that's from. Have you... I, you got me hooked on Smartless, the podcast. Yeah. And then I told George, you have to listen to it. It's actually really funny. Oh, I'm so glad it's spreading. And Zach Galifianakis in his episode, which is one of the more recent ones, he just talks about like fucking with people. And when, when they're like, who are your like comedy heroes or influences? And he says, Condi Rice. <laughs> <laughs> but Condi is what, it is actually really funny. That's, that podcast is one of my new favorites, actually. I think I've listened to all the episodes. Um, okay, but so not E.T., not Condi Rice. Um, Hidden Brain, they have an episode called Humorous and they talk about the humor cliff, which is something that happens as we become adults. Like they, there, there's a behavioral scientist that's interviewed on the episode and she's done a lot of work into like laughter and the benefits of it from like a health perspective as well. And the, I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like children laugh on average or like toddlers, like 400 times a day. And then we hit this cliff, which is often around like the 23, 24 year old mark. And by the time we're older, like people just don't laugh as much. And it's really interesting episode, but also they do a really good job of it. Like they blend in little clips of stand up and funny anecdotes. So you actually are laughing during the episode. But I think it also reminded me of dancercism as well. Like there is something to be said for things that just make you feel joy and silly and playful. And that's something that I've really been trying to increase in my own life. And so again, it's like a little bit confirmation bias, but it's also, it's just like nice to hear that it is really beneficial to just like laugh and have fun and be playful. And, but they of course take like a behavioral scientific type behavioral scientific look at it as well but it's a really really good episode and that I had not listened to Hidden Brain in a long time and that episode got me fully back on board with them so that's my first one and then number two so obviously I've um, moved recently but my quest for more sustainable uh, friendly products is is ever present. And I found this company called Zero Waste Movement. And I bought the dishwashing bundle, which is a little 
bergamot and lime, like solid dish bar. Their whole thing is just like no more plastic. So it's a little bar and then it comes with a um, dish brush and you just like wet the soap and then you get it nice and foamy with a little red cedar soap tray. And I'm so impressed with the quality of it and the company and the packaging. It came with like a little handwritten thank you note. It's handmade in Winnipeg in Canada and um, they have other stuff as well. I, I chose the dishwashing bundle, but I'm excited about this company. So I wanted to share that with you guys. And then my third thing, again, it's maybe not as timely, but I think there's never a bad time to be learning about this. I haven't talked about Verso books in a while, but that is like the independent publisher and, and they do a lot of um, free eBooks that are very much related to what's happening socially. And I checked this morning to make sure that they still had them. They've been offering free eBooks around Israel and Palestine and the conflict between the two. And right now, the the eBooks that are still free downloads are 10 Myths About Israel and An Army Like No Other. And I think if there's anyone that is struggling to understand what happened and what has been happening between Israel and Palestine and just wants to learn about it, I think learning about it then prepares you to react to it. I think it was a very kind of knee-jerk response where everyone became like pro-Palestine, which I'm definitely not arguing against. But then it became very much like anti-Israel and anti-Jewish. And I think if you are looking for just some information about Israel's army, which is a very fascinating and and kind of, uh, there's not really a, a counterpart to it, particularly not in Palestine. So I just think if you're struggling to understand what happened there and what has been happening and the conflict where it started and to learn more about the two sides and just there's a really nice free resource with those two books, which I would recommend. So that's my third thing. Great recommendation. Yeah, I got to get that that one. But the, I go back to your first one. I guess I'm sure you did tell me to listen, but I listened to that too. And I and did tell you and this. yeah, thank you. Um, I wish I wish. I mean, Dan knows this because he has to suffer through my nonsense. But like, there is there is a, a a bit of method to my madness. Like in terms of like in in work stuff, like injecting humor. I I have always felt that it it. it it, it it spurs creativity. It let people just sort of because you get in particular like these Zoom calls, and it can go too far. And I'm often the one that makes it go too far. But <laughs> um, but like one of the things. But I, I I wish that we could destigmatize that because like I fought against it all my life. Like this idea that that like oh we have to be so serious. It's like do we? And some of it's just because like I just like to amuse myself and others. Um, but but it, also it's like it 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 your brain like relaxes and you have unexpected stuff. And I found that uh, that issue, that whatever it was podcast so sad. It was like because as you said, like children like laugh all the fucking time. Constantly. And it's like you know, sort of it's like you laugh once a year. They're like what an awful! I love to laugh. I love nonsense. I love silliness. And I think it's it's constructive. It's it's it's. It, it fires dopamines. It fires all these good things, and and yet, like I've had to fight culturally against uh, George. Uh, could we could we get serious here for a minute? Uh, fuck you! You're like maybe if you weren't so serious all the time, you'd actually wouldn't be a a, a douche and be more so unsuccessful. So I, I don't know. I, I, There's I'm a whole part about um, 
laughter in the workplace in the episode as well, and people's perception of, of management and bosses who have a sense of humor and how it can really bond people in the workplace. And again, it's like the anecdotes, of course, you can live it and you can see it and you know that it's better to laugh with someone than to not laugh with someone. But, but there's a lot of research behind it too. Exactly. That's the thing. Then you're not taken as seriously particularly for women, then it's like, then it, then it's like, you're just not, it's a proxy for you not being intelligent or something. Right. But I mean, I like, I think with my students completely, the moment and it, and again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about having the mask on the moment that they get that I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not so serious that they can laugh. The classes transform. And they learn better, they loosen up, they talk more. And yet, sometimes there's ridiculous nonsense that's arguably a waste of time. But I can promise you, me just standing there lecturing, and now we're going to talk about net promotion, like, that's not a good way to lecture. And for some people, some people don't like my nonsense, and that's okay. Apparently, laughing, according to the behavioral scientist, from a physiological perspective, laughing, like a fit of laughter, is the equivalent of meditating, exercising, and I can't remember if it's having sex or orgasming at the same time. That that right. same amount and the different endorphins that, that fire off in your brain. Let's do less of that. Well, and there's the whole joke of, well, obviously laughing is a lot easier than meditating, exercising, and having sex all at once. And so, but like, that's a pretty Maybe cool for you. fact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a really good episode, and there is a, a big chunk of it. It is about laughter in the workplace. Actually, I didn't mention that, but that's a big part of it. And it is true. If you go through something with someone and you laugh, you feel closer to them. And there's also an interesting part where they did a study and they asked couples to recount a time that they, like a happy memory, and then they asked other couples to recount a memory that was really funny. And also, like, you can laugh because you were really stressed or really scared and then kind of, like, realizing that it was ridiculous. And couples that laugh together are much happier and have much stronger relationships than couples that just see themselves as, like, in a happy relationship. Totally. Why the fuck would you want to be in a relationship if you didn't laugh with the person? I mean, it's just like, I don't understand that. It'd be like being in a relationship with somebody you don't want to have sex with or something. It's like, uh, why are we in a relationship? There's a lot of people, I think, that are in those kind of relationships, though. Well, they should get the fuck out. I want I want a spinoff podcast of George giving relationship advice. I don't. I could give good relationship <laughs> advice at this point. All right, my three things. Number one. The Marian Faithful's new record, um, She Walks in Beauty, um, dark AF. But, like, I've always loved Marian Faithful so much. I think her, um, some of her records in the 80s are amazing, and she was obviously a lot of people's muse, and, and I don't think she gets her due. This is one dark record, right? She she almost died of COVID. Um, uh, what's a good dude? Oh, man, I should have written it down. Warren Ellis, is that his name? Uh, Nick Cave's uh, violin player guy. He was in The Dirty Three. He produced it. And it's her, it's this beautiful atmospheric music and her reading, not not singing, reading um, like British romantic poets. So like mm. Shelley and Wordsworth and Byron and shit. And it's it's just astonishing. It's just like, and, and it, it again, and I, I'm, I'm always wrong about this. It sounds kind of like a last record. You know, I hope it's not, but it's 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 definitely a, some sort of signatory. Um, and then in terms of other awesome records, 
I've been as I as is my want. Um, I've been obsessed with the new Saint Vincent record, Daddy's Home. Um, I've never like I've always just totally respected her, um, and 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 just you know think she's total badass and like all one of the people because people are like oh there why are there no great female guitar players like have you not heard Annie Clark play you know I mean there are tons of them but like people you know and. Um, but for whatever reason, like I, I didn't find myself going back, and it's it's totally my fault. And now I will. But the 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 daddy's home record is unbelievable, and it's it's of a like she's clearly trying to channel from the cover to the production, and it's that the Jack Antonoff dude or whatever yep. um, to to the the lyrics. It's the seventies, like she's doing she's doing seventies kind of New York thing, and but but it's really interesting. It's sort of arch because like the songs all have characteristics and you can kind of spot them. You can be like, oh, she's doing the Carpenters. That's weird, but then it makes a lot of sense. Um, and the production's beautiful. The lyrics are, like, it's one of those times, I'm not really a lyric, or lyrics always come later for me. The music comes first. And like last night, I was like pulling up the lyrics and reading the lyrics as the song was like, holy fuck, these are great lyrics. She comes up a bit in the pedal movie. I bet. She's a badass guitar player I, like, and she's someone that i'd go see like and wouldn't stand in the back and text she's really you know good. yeah um and then my third thing is um red boat fish sauce um which is just amazing and and i don't think it's the the do that it should you can plop that stuff on almost anything and immediately improve it right and it's it's ubiquitous They've read about fit. It's not like, oh, I can't get fits, fish sauce anywhere. It's it's ubiquitous. Um, and I implore people just start putting more fish sauce on things. Can you describe it? It's anchovies. It's 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 like I don't I mean so but it's it doesn't it's, taste like anchovies. Like salty vinegar kind salty, of salty, but it's 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 umami. Like so it's hard it's one of those flavors that's hard to describe. But like if you've ever wanted that, like if you like Thai food or whatever, and you're like, huh, I wonder if that Thai food of that restaurant tastes great. I don't know, what is that magical pixie dust they put on there? That magical pixie dust is fucking umami. It's it's fish sauce. And so like you can make like my favorite thing is is uh, lab guy, but I don't I don't eat the pork, so like I'll just mince up shrimp or veggies or whatever and then just pour a little fish sauce on it's like holy fuck um well this was fun i um i uh i gotta go do this i gotta gotta do the rock we should have more guests yeah so any listeners out there i have one ask for you all if if there's someone that you know who might like this podcast tell them Right. There's got to be someone in your orbit who's an artist or an entrepreneur that would that would benefit from this. And you should turn them on to it. That's my ask for any of our listeners. Find one friend of yours and tell them about it. Don't tweet about it. Don't blog about it. Actually go and say, I think you would like this. That's my ask to the listeners. And I think we should get some some more guests on. And I can't be the only one bringing the noise with the guests. I will. I will fill the vacuum. I will do it. I will do it. I will get Condi Rice on this podcast. Okay, fine. Condi Rice can come. All right, my peeps. Bye. Bye. The Entrepreneurship and Art Podcast is a GH Strategic Production hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, Dan Cervantes, and George Howard. For more information and show notes, visit our website at entrepreneurshipandart.com.